Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is archives of the paranormal. My guest is Walter Meyer zu Erpen, who is a professional archivist and also founder and a director of the Survival Research Institute of Canada. This interview was recorded in December 2021 in Las Vegas, Nevada, where Walter and I were both present as award recipients of the Bigelow Institute for Consciousness Studies essay competition. And now I'll switch over to that video. Welcome, Walter. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you, Jeffrey, and thanks for inviting me. You are an archivist, which is uh, not a common job occupation. Uh, why don't you describe a little bit what your what your work is like? Uh, well, I trained. I did uh, history first, and then an archival studies degree at the University of British Columbia. Um, my I used to work for the BC government for almost twenty years, but I've been a consultant since two thousand and five. So. Mm -hmm. I'm an archives consultant for several organizations that are at arm's length from government. What, what does an archivist do? That's a good question and uh, something that I do um, very readily, very easily, because I've done it for so many years, but I never talk about it. Um, uh, that's going to be a harder question <laughs> than all the other questions. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I've been recently been very involved in digitization projects, uh, digitization of historical records, um, largely relating to land titles in the province of British Columbia. Um, I've helped several clients with large moves and um, creation of modern um, archives vaults. So it's been a really hands-on um, process over the last number of years with a number of subcontractors working for me. Because we live in an era of information explosion, uh, and so there's a need to preserve that information, and it's it's constantly increasing geometrically, I would think. Uh, yeah, and I've largely managed to avoid dealing with the explosion of uh, electronic information. I mean, we are creating digital images of historic records, but I've I'm going to leave that to the next generation to deal with the electronic data. I'm mm -hmm. going to be happily finishing my career working with um, paper historic records. Mm -hmm. And in particular, with regard to parapsychology and psychical research, how did your interest begin? Um, that goes back a good number of years. A, a colleague, dear colleague of mine, Deborah, in 1990, asked if I would uh, research and contribute an article for Archivaria, the uh, journal of the Association of Canadian Archivists, uh, focused on the records of the spiritualist movement in Canada. So I started researching and um, I found out there wasn't much available because small organizations, especially NGOs, are not good at record keeping and ensuring that something happens to them. So those records often end up in the home of the principals involved in the organization. And sometimes when they ultimately pass away, they end up being thrown out mm -hmm. as family are cleaning out the, the house. So, um, but during that research, I, I came across reference to the Hamilton 
research, the researcher Dr. Thomas Glendening Hamilton in, in Winnipeg, Manitoba, which is a, another uh, as, aspect of the research I've been involved in. But to, to stay on the topic of uh, preservation of the historic records of parapsychology, um, because of that initial article in 1990, became increasingly interested, started to gather material that was being offered to me and uh, have focused on depositing it at the University of Manitoba Archives and Special Collections in Winnipeg because of the, the Hamilton phone being there already. And things just gradually evolved, finding there were other archivists interested in the paranormal and um, an, an initiative um, in, in Europe, a meeting in Europe in uh, Utrecht, uh, Holland, in in uh, 2014 that I helped co-facilitate, which was the Preserving the Historical Collections of Parapsychology meeting, the first meeting we had. Mm -hmm. And um, subsequently we held another meeting in Winnipeg in 2018, and and then COVID hit, and we haven't quite figured out how to go forward with the next uh, next meeting. I guess it's fair to say that you could trace the development of scientific parapsychology back 90 years or so to the about 1930 when J.B. Rhine began his research at Duke University and, and psychical research and spiritualism goes back uh, almost another hundred years before that to, to the uh, mid-1800s. So there, at this point, there must be vast amounts of historical data. Maybe since the 1930s, but I think the volume of, of material predating 1930 is pretty small, actually. There's not that much. And even, I think, from the 30s and 40s, I would, I would think the largest volume of material that's at risk currently is from the 1960s, 1970s, um, research by yourself and, and your predecessor generations of individuals whom we know who are now in their 80s and early 90s. And, and some of that has fortunately been preserved. Uh, the records of Bill Roll and Ingo Swan are at the University of West Georgia and the archivist there, Blin Oliveri, came to the meeting in Winnipeg that we held and we had very good discussions. And I know that she's interested in acquiring more materials. Um, you'll be aware that our colleague Erlander Haraldson passed away not too many months ago. It was the end of uh, 2020, and we were able to do a very nice tribute to Erlander in the renamed um, The Paranormal Review, which is now the magazine for the Society of Psychical Research that should be arriving in people's mail soon, the paper copy. People who are members of the Society of Psychical Research will get that magazine. Right. Yeah, or can subscribe and can access it online. Mm -hmm. Um, but his his archives, the, the fate of his archives, have not yet been um, established yet either. I mean, he, he has um, made provision for those to come to the University of Manitoba as well, but we haven't worked out the logistics because of um, travel restrictions and, and the like. And I know that Jeffrey Kripal at Rice University is establishing an archive. That, that a good point. Um, Anna Sparberg is the um, university uh, librarian there. She also came to our meeting in Winnipeg, and uh, we had good discussions, and we're, we're all trying to work collaborati collaboratively. I mean, this should not be a competition because there's weight. Well, as I said, it's a, it's a relatively small volume of records compared to the documentation in other fields, mm -hmm. but um, we don't need to be competing. We need to find homes for this material. And now that you mention it, there's the... Uh, collection of uh, Ted Sirio's Thoughtographs, which is at the University of Maryland. That's right, yes. And Steve Browdy was instrumental in, 
in helping uh, preserve those. And I think that's their second home. They had a previous home and then for some reason uh, it was decided that those records did not fall within the collection mandate of that library. And fortunately, Steve Browdy was still affiliated with the University of Maryland at Baltimore and the records were relocated. And uh, the curator there, Thomas Beck, uh, Dr. Tom Beck, uh, he came to the Winnipeg meeting as well. So we were fortunate to have Tom there and he gave a very good presentation on the... Uh, so I guess while we're talking about the preserving the uh, historical collections of the paranormal, another individual who's been very instrumental is um, J. Gordon Melton, uh, who made provision for his vast research collection to go to um, Santa Barbara, it's the University of California at Santa Barbara, I believe. Mm -hmm. And of course, he was the individual who combined to who um, researched and published those very large uh, and very useful, um, the two-volume encyclopedia of um, occultism and parapsychology. I believe the title is. Once a university uh, acquires a collection like that, there's a lot of work that still has to be done. Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. No, it's not just a matter of collecting, and that's why today um, a big piece of the challenge of finding homes for um, the archives of the paranormal is um, universities are going to be looking for an endowment as well, or at least a, you know, a contribution to the wards, towards uh, transporting the archives. And then all of the work behind that is um, organizing them, refoldering them into um, archival folders if that's possible, and creating finding aids and making the finding of aids available online. So uh, ultimately, the goal is to take the photographs and documents and digitize them and, and then find a way to make everything searchable. In a best case scenario, yeah. It's, realistically, though, it's not possible to digitize everything. Um, I think most digitization projects are going to be um, selective, have to be selective. Mm -hmm. um, another large and important collection I've been involved in is that of... Um, um, Bernard Grad um, from he, he was a did not do his research under the aegis of McGill University, but he was associated with. He was a professor of biology at McGill, McGill University. University. He passed away in 2010, and then um, his widow passed away a few years later. And I was fortunate to be able to help guide those records as well to Manitoba. So mm -hmm. there's a uh, finding aid. We were we were hoping to do a. a a release with the family, with the, the sons, do a, um, a launch, a launch of the Finding Aid. But the Finding Aid is available on the University of Manitoba website. It's, um, well, I think this is very important because on the one hand, you have large segments of the academic community who treat the paranormal data that's been acquired over the years as if it never existed. Right. And then on the other hand, you have library collections that say it exists and we have it and it's searchable. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So that, to me, that's very significant. Yes. Yeah. And, and some of the finding aids are, you know, in, in incredible detail uh, when you have a, a chance to look at them. Um, there's a, the University of Manitoba has, I'm not sure how many collections I've helped direct to Manitoba, but the list, if you search uh, Manitoba, um, spirit, psychical research and spiritualism, you come up with quite a large list of of collections that are accessible there, and it would not have been that would not have happened if it weren't for the Hamilton collection originally. Mm -hmm. I think that the first large collection, that, in addition to all the smaller ones, the first large one that I helped direct there were the records of um, Alexander Image, mm -hmm. who um, lived to be the age of a hundred and 
111 or 114. For, for a very short period, he was the oldest living male in the United States, I believe. And a psychical researcher. Oh, absolutely, yes. That's right, yes. Yeah, and, and in his earliest study, he was so proud showing me his earliest study uh, was a typescript, very poor quality carbon copy typescript from 1932, I believe with a Polish media. Yeah. I mean, this is all on record. Mm -hmm. um, and um, yeah, no, he was a fascinating gentleman. So his collection is also at the University of Manitoba. That's right, as, as well as the remaining records of uh, Iris and George Owen with respect to the Philip um, experiments under the uh, Toronto Society for Psychical Research in the early 1970s. And as I recall, I interviewed Stanley Krippner about his research on apports in Brazil. Ah, uh, yes, okay. With uh, Amir Amadin, who, who was producing apports. And if I recall correctly, Stanley told me that the, the physical objects that were apported that he documented in his own research are now at the Manitoba Collection. You're right. You've got a, a very good memory. You've got a better memory than I do, <laughs> Jeffrey. Um, yes, um, Stan and I were in contact uh, following one of the Society for Science. Society for Scientific Exploration meetings. I remember sitting with uh, Stan Krippner and Rosemary Pilkington, and um, I often have a letter of intent at hand, and I got him to sign a letter of intent, and then we followed through, and those objects are available at the University of Manitoba. Now, you, archives don't typically acquire um, artifacts, three-dimensional objects, but because this is such a... Uh, it, the, what... Re, survives in this field is so rare, I managed to convince them that they should take that. In addition, they'd already taken the um, some of the um, spoon-bending artifacts that were in Alex Image's collection. Mm -hmm. And uh, most recently we've acquired a, uh, or I've helped the university acquire a seance table, a wooden seance table from the we believe it's from the 1930s. Definitely it was from Winnipeg, because Dr. and Mrs. Creighton, who um, were members of the Hamilton Group in Winnipeg, they moved to Ontario, and it was through meeting their son that I was able to suggest that table might go back to Winnipeg, and they, they agreed that it should. And since we're talking about objects, I'm pretty sure that the Stanford University Library or Museum keeps in their basement a collection of objects that were purportedly apported by the um, brother, I think, of the founder of Stanford University who moved to Australia and was a spiritualist. Are you aware of that collection? I'm not aware of the collection, but I know of the Stanford who... Um, there's a, a very thick-bound volume um, that a Mr. Stanford had a role in editing, I believe. I have a copy of it at home, and I know that he was affiliated with the university, so he was the one that was interested in in the psychical research. Mm -hmm. I wasn't I didn't wasn't aware that he was a spiritualist. I have been told. I have never seen it, but I have been told that they keep in the basement there objects that uh, were purportedly apported during seances oh, okay. in Australia. Oh. Well, if you send me a reminder, maybe we can pursue that and I can look yeah. at the volume that we've got and just see, find out more about it. I've always been curious about it. I don't know that they've been properly cataloged or anything and yeah. how accessible 
they are, but because he was, I think, the brother of the founder of the university, he managed to get the University Art Museum, I think it is, okay. at Stanford University to uh, agree to accept these items. No, that would be interesting per to pursue because another, um, another initiative that uh, has um, uh, followed upon the Winnipeg meeting in 2018, the Preserving the Historical Collections of Parapsychology meeting, uh, there was discussion there about a um, a portal, uh, uh, an internet portal, uh, to be able to um, have institutions contribute a profile, and so that's also freely accessible through the um, on the internet um, with a URL, a very short URL, phcp.nl. And the reason that we went for NL, which stands for Netherlands, is because the first Preserving the Historical Collections of Parapsychology meeting was held in Utrecht in 2014. Mm -hmm. So it, it's an acknowledgement, and it wasn't available. Yeah. It was the available. So we've got already, There's um, maybe there's only 15 or so institutions that have contributed um, profiles, but we would like, it's, it's all a voluntary effort, but would like more institutions to contribute profiles, even if they have only a small collection, because that would be a very useful place for individuals to be able to go to research and find out that, for instance, there's this box hidden away, and I'd never heard that one. Yeah, the Stanford University, very mysterious, okay. and, and maybe they're a bit embarrassed about it. You mentioned Utrecht, and that's where Professor Tenhoff uh, did a great deal of research uh, over many years. That, yes, and um, Wim Kramer is very interested in the history of Dutch uh, spiritualism and psychical research. And I don't remember the details of which collections, but they have also worked to, uh, it's called, it's a, the Het Johan Borgman Fond, and it has financed a lot of that work to place um, archives and even um, library collections in, um, they're, they're not holding them, them themselves, they're finding homes for them in, in academic libraries primarily, or the state, the state library. Well, let's talk about the uh, collection that you helped start all of this with, the work of Thomas Glendening Hamilton. Uh, he was in Winnipeg. Yeah, he was a medical doctor in Winnipeg. Uh, he was born in 1873, dies in 1935. And um, leading a very normal professional life for, for those days um, and became interested in um, psychical research through a colleague of his who'd had first-hand experience of the patient's worth phenomena, uh, a, a professor at, I think it was the University of Winnipeg, um, uh, William Talbot Allison had gone down and had had, had sittings with um, Mrs. Curran. Pearl Curran. Pearl Curran. In St. Louis. Missouri, who was the channel for um, Patients Worth. Yeah. And so it was as a result of uh, Reverend Dr. Allison speaking with Dr. Hamilton and other colleagues that he became interested. Uh, then a small group of them tried uh, thought transference experiments. So in 1918, they, they did some thought transference experiments, which convinced them already that that was possible. And... Um, from there, it was um, the Hamilton family's nanny, Mrs. Elizabeth Poole, who um, it was discovered that she had a telekinetic ability. She was able to cause um, objects to move, in particular a small table. So from there they started, and uh, they had some, you know, the normal sort of table rocking, table tilting, which doesn't 
prove an awful lot. And they had a very short period where they actually tried to get um, communication through through rapping, through calling out the al- alphabet and raps. So, but that wasn't the the most um, astonishing part of the Hamilton research. Was in fact um, the um, non-contact table levitation. So over a number of years between, uh, they studied the table phenomena between 1921 and 1927, but especially between 1923 and 1927, on uh, over 50 instances, there's over 50 photographs of tables, some of which are completely in the air with no contacts. And they're amazing photographs that I'd be happy to share with you at some point if you're interested. Well, the intriguing thing about all of this is that it seems to have occurred at a historical moment when spiritualism was was very vibrant and and throughout North America and Europe, uh, people were, uh, before the era of television, people, instead of sitting around in front of the TV, people would gather and hold seances. Oh, absolutely. And and the Hamiltons um, were holding seances. They they referred to them as sittings or seances. in a spiritualist sense, but with the, the psychical research overlay. So the, the Hamiltons never attended spiritualist churches. They, they would never have considered themselves spiritualists. And in fact, the group uh, founded the Winnipeg Society for Psychical Research in 19, 1931. And Dr. Hamilton became the first president, and a number of other medical doctors and lawyers and professionals were on the, the council. So Dr. Hamilton was really trying to research the... Um, well, what we know now as psychokinesis, PK, the macro PK, was trying to uh, investigate that along scientific lines. And ultimately, he had a, a bank of um, cameras, 11 cameras and three flash apparatus, including a re- remote control device. So he was able to um, take multiple photographs from different angles of all these phenomena that he, he observed um, and, but of course, um, you know, tables flying in the air don't prove life after death, don't even really give evidence of life after death. And, and many people, um, really, there's a, there's a lot of, um, muddled thinking, in my opinion, a lot of muddled thinking about what evidence for life after death is and what, what constitutes life after death, evidence of life after death. So it was really when they started to get the, um, photographs of ectoplasm, which was um, after, in 1928, when Marianne Marshall uh, began sitting with them on a regular basis. She'd attended once previously, and then it was at some point in 1928 that um, she started attending as a regular member. Then her sister-in-law, Susan Marshall, joined the group as well, possibly the following year. So, um, the amazing thing in the Hamilton case is that it wasn't a traveling road show. It was a stable group meeting in the Hamilton home in a seance room, a bedroom upstairs. Um, the sitters went up to for the, the seances and they, they had, to the extent possible, they had controls in place and they'd had special observers would come on certain evenings. And when, when it was predicted by the trance controls that uh, a special phenomena was going to be photographed, that an ectoplasm would be visible to for photography that evening, they would ensure that the medium's body was searched and that she would be given fresh clothes that Mrs. Hamilton had provided. So they did, you know, everything that they could to preclude the possibility of fraud. And there are some um there are there are affidavits in the from 1928. There's some affidavits in the 
Hamilton collection where every member uh, signed an affidavit that they had not somehow tampered with or fraudulently introduced anything into the seances on four different evenings in 1928-1929. And of course there's the, the remarkable photography of these um, it's um, the numbers, it's hard for me to remember the exact numbers, but it was um, I think they had did the flash photography on 50 evenings 50 to 60 evenings, and they had 72 separate pieces of ectoplasm, because in some of the instances, there was one, more than one piece of ectoplasm. This was, I believe, in the period during which Dr. Hamilton was still alive. And again, ectoplasm doesn't prove life after death. It doesn't provide evidence of life after death, um, except when you get these remarkable little miniature faces in the ectoplasm. And that, then you've, you know, the boggle threshold, you really hit up against the boggle threshold, and you have to weigh that and say, well, what is that? And mm -hmm. there's one photograph in particular that um, convinced me of the authenticity of the, the ectoplasmic photographs, because I cannot see how... Um, you know, it's it's very it's very clear that the ectoplasm is a vaporous substance that is coming out of the body of the medium. Uh, it becomes visible. It's possible to photograph it. And there's one um, photograph, at least one, where they've been glued into a an album by a third party who maintained his own album. He was a, a respected lawyer in Winnipeg, Mr. Green. And it shows the fully formed ectoplasm with the face of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And then a minute and a half later, there's just a very little piece of ectoplasm left at the mouth of the medium, Marianne Marshall. Mm -hmm. And when I first saw that photograph um, of Mrs. Marshall with the Char Charles Haddon Spurgeon ectoplasm, and it was a, one of the sepia tone photographs, it was a, maybe a five by seven enlargement or so, to me, it, it wasn't like a photograph glued into an ectoplasm, which is the common um, argument. They look so fake. Many of them do. They do, and I, I have to admit it. But this one is the one that, you know, it's... If there are white crows, the, the endless discussion of white crows, which during our meeting recently, uh, I'll, tr I'll tribute this to Cal Cooper. Cal Cooper thought we should be looking for gray co crows. <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I'm convinced that if they're is real ectoplasm, it's documented in the Hamilton collection. Mm -hmm. um, and it is by far, both in terms of the table phenomena and the ectoplasmic phenomena, the Hamilton collection is worldwide the best documented collection. And I know that's a huge claim, but I've not seen anything to match it. Well, we're talking about hundreds of photographs altogether. Yeah, but from all the different angles, there's something like 700 photographs. And again, I don't have the exact numbers whether those are 700 photographs of all of the different phenomena. Um, I can certainly provide an, a, a website link for you, um, if you like, and we can... I will post the website link uh, on, on the video so that people who view this will be able to go directly there. And I know, for example, the uh, University of Manitoba archives contain the records going back about that far to the 1930s, I think, of Psychic News, the Spiritualist Newspaper of England. Right, that's another project um, that I was involved with. Um, so that was a project um, initiated with Roy Stemmen, mm -hmm. whom you... you I've know, interviewed um, Roy. Roy, a good friend. Um, and he, um, well, we both had personal... <laughs> 
we both had personal interest in it. We wanted access to psychic news. Yeah. And obviously, as a, an archivist, I was concerned about the condition of the newspaper as I'd seen it. So it was a long process, way longer and more com complicated than we thought. But yeah, it's fully searchable from 1932 to 2010. Um, all those... Um, almost 80 years, 78 years, I guess, of psychic news are accessible on the University of Manitoba Archives website. So where I think this could be especially useful is it looking at the relationship between cultural moments or cultural modalities and the kind of phenomena that occur. That back in the late 1800s or mid-1800s, early 1900s, spiritualism was much more, what is the word I'm looking for? People were more receptive to spiritualism then than I think they are today. Yes, I think as you mentioned, there was more time. It was before TV. They had more time to invest in sitting in, in circle for, um, for development. Um, and people were more willing to commit to weekly attendance, or even in the case of the Hamiltons, people were... Uh, coming two and three times a week sometimes. I mean, those ectoplasmic manifestations, the, the documentation shows that sometimes the guide told them how many times they had to sit before you're going to have to sit. There was a process of preparation. Yeah. And I don't think today with the, you know, the, our, our desire for instant gratification and, and Googling this or, mm -hmm. you know, looking for answers, I don't think people are willing to, um, Sit for that long. It's I'm rare. I, I know I've interviewed a physical medium, Stuart Alexander, in the United Kingdom, who tells me he, today he produces, he's a man my age in his 70s, uh, and he produces a lot of physical phenomenon. He's been observed by members of the Society for Psychical Research. But as I recall, I think he told me he sat regularly in a, a spiritualist development group for years before anything occurred. Yeah, no, and I've been fortunate. I was able to attend uh, one of Stuart Alexander's seances um, oh. in the home circle. In the, it was a, I, was, I was visiting York and mm -hmm. was hosted by um, um, spiritualist friends and who were members of the circle and they just phoned up to see whatever evening of the week of Thursday evening maybe and phoned to say hey is there any extra room for a guest so I was the only guest in the in Stuart Alexander's home circle that evening and was invited to the table to to uh, experience to the, the edge of the the end of the small oval table and and that hand you know there was this sort of blob of black energy pulsating um and then on a second attempt, I went back and I read my notes recently for that. On a second attempt, we were all still seated in the same position. Uh, this hand and arm emerged out of this pulsating blob and, and reached out. And I was advised that I could touch it to hold. It was what we clasped hands and as quickly it disappeared. And it, it's, a, it's really hard to know what to make of, of that. Totally mind-boggling. Totally mind-boggling, yes. And, you know... In my opinion, Stuart Alexander is the real deal. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's still, the, I don't know how to explain, you know, what's... It's not likely to fit into a mechanistic explanation. No, not at all. It's, mm -hmm. uh, uh, and the claim in that instance, as you know, is that that is the uh, materialized hand of Walter Stewart Stinson, uh, which, you know, in interestingly... Uh, Walter Stewart Stinson starts as the uh, deceased brother of uh, Mina 
Stinson Crandon in the 1923. Um, there was a whole debacle over the Scientific American. And I'm good friends with Marjorie's, and so that she was known as, Mina Crandon was known as the medium Marjorie to protect her identity, which was very short-lived, and I guess that of her husband as well. And I'm good friends with um, Mina Crandon's uh, great-granddaughter, Anna Thurlow. So... I have this relationship with Walter Stewart Stinson from the Crandon case. He's central to the whole Hamilton case because yes. he was the, he was the main um, trans control in the Hamilton research with Marianne Marshall, also with Susan Marshall. I mean, it, he, he wasn't the Walter control was not limited to a single medium in the Hamilton case, and there were multiple mediums there. And then, of course, I've also experienced Walter in in Hull um, in Yorkshire in the. Stuart Alexander circle, but I'm not convinced that it was the same uh, Walter personality in all instances, mm -hmm. and nor was Dr. Hamilton. Uh, Dr. Hamilton is on record um, as saying there was no evidence, apart from Walter claiming to be Marjorie's brother, yeah. and there was attempts of Walter putting his eyes uh, for Walter's eyes appear in an ectoplasmic mask, but again, it's, it's really, it's very, very difficult to... Well, the, the Marjorie mediumship was extremely controversial back in the 1920s. It was, yes. And she became one of the most famous people in the United States right. at, at the time. There was... Uh, Harry Houdini was involved, and people accused her of fraud. Uh, other people claim they witnessed phenomena under very good conditions. Uh, her husband was a professor at Harvard University. Other Harvard scholars were witnesses to these things. Well, were there any materials preserved from the original Marjorie seances? As, as in, you mean ectoplasm? Or? Well, anything. For example, I know there was a Dr. Richardson who developed a device he used okay. to... Uh, they did direct voice mediumship associated with Walter Stinson, and he had a device that all of the sitters attached to their mouths to ensure that no one in the seance room could uh, create a voice. I believe it's called the voice cutout device or something like that. The, yeah. the, the water would prevent any anyone from speaking. Like, I wonder if that device has been preserved. To my knowledge, no, it, it has not. Um, I mean, Anna Thurlow does have the the Crandon archives. So mm -hmm. the Crandon, um, the, the research materials that have come down to her from from Doctor and Mrs. Crandon are um, are with Anna Thurlow. Mm -hmm. And I I was fortunate when I first got involved, I was able to speak with Marjorie's son. Marjorie's son, um, Doctor John Crandon, he was adopted. Um, Doctor John Crandon was still alive, and I had several phone conversations with him, which was ultimately how I managed to contact his, his granddaughter, Anna. That history, for people who are devoted to understanding the birth of psychical research and parapsychology, uh, this, this is a important historical information that could become lost uh, completely. Yes, but fortunately, Anna will ensure that it is preserved somewhere. It's not. Mm -hmm. She's she's very aware of the archival um, importance of those, and, and she's she's got them in archival cases and Hollinger cases. So she's doing her best. But she's interested in maintaining that material at this point. Mm -hmm. 
And, and she knows that as long as I'm around, I'm going to be making... <laughs> I'm going to be making sure she, pestering her to make sure she makes provision for them. So There's also spiritualist communities like Lilydale and Camp Chesterfield, where I imagine they preserve quite a lot of information going back many, many decades. I, I wonder if any of that gets uh, to your attention. I haven't. I visited Lilydale, but um, Ron Nagy, is the historian, resident historian there, and there's a museum in Lilydale. There's also in Camp Chesterfield, there's a museum. And I'm just sort of assuming that they are doing what they should be doing. And um, it would be great, though, if we could find a means of, of securing a, a, a digital copy of the uh, Psychic Observer, mm -hmm. which was the U.S. equivalent of, of um, Psychic News. But I'm not even aware where there's a complete copy of it. Mm -hmm. There are many, uh, many artifacts from the spiritualist era, uh, uh, because mediums, for example, produce spirit paintings. Yes, and I'm not, it's not really my area of expertise, yeah. but there's been uh, several books recently on those precipitated paintings. Yeah. Uh, one done by Ron Nagy, I believe, and the other one by um, Riley Hagerty has done a book on, on the precipitated paintings. So. Because on the one hand, I think the conventional wisdom is this is all a question of a sleight of hand and out-and-out fraud, and other people argue, I think, very carefully that, at least in some instances, that the fraudulent explanations don't hold up. No, no. There's the, the. It's very unfortunate that there's this layer or veneer of fraudulent activity on pop on top of very genuine phenomena, and um, with respect, for instance, to the macro PK experiments of Dr. Hamilton, the group um, that met in my home in Victoria for well, we met for many more years, but we were focused on um, on largely focused on table phenomena for over ten years. We um, we achieved the sort of standard rocking back and forth of a table. It was a almost square, 21-foot-pound um, IKEA table with the legs at the outer edges, mm -hmm. which and we did it in good light. And and um, the best phenomena, we, best phenomena we were able to obtain were three legs up off the ground and the table pivoting around on one leg. And you know, it was in my home. There were no wires. There was no trickery. I'd been working with the same people for many, many years. They're all good friends. There is no hocus pocus happening there. There is a there is a life force energy or whatever one wants to call it, macro PK. That which all that that is is a label of something we really can't define. And um, there's no way that it was idiomotor or unconscious muscular action. And it's so irritating when the the experts, so to speak, that have had no experience of these phenomena, get into a documentary with you, the Chris French of the world or James Alcock. And aren't even shown the phenomena and make, you know, the usual comments, blah, 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 um, about it can't possibly be real. Well, it is real. I've, I've observed it. And I know that that table, you know, pivoting on one leg, especially when there was no, um, on one instance when I observed it, there was a sitter on either side of the table. There was nobody straddling the corner on which it was pivoting. So to pivot a table, you have to be exerting downward pressure. We can see all the hands. And, um, you know, I've got, I've got video photography um, where we can see that everybody had a single hand and the hands are very light on the table. So it's, um, in one instance, we had um, 
William Stoney um, attend, or that William and his wife Joy attended on a number of occasions, but I recall recently when I did a presentation about the table phenomena going through the notes again, and the best instance was when we saw the pivoting motion in on all four corners in quick succession. So you imagine a 21-pound square table, normal table height, mm -hmm. and pivoting on one leg, then the other leg, then the other leg, and the other leg. And it was just, we're all so excited. You can hear my voice. Oh my God, it's all four legs in a row, <laughs> all four corners in a row. And the interesting thing when I read the notes was Bill Stoney was on one corner, his wife Joy was on the other corner, so they weren't even people that were regular members of our group. You know, if, you, if one argues, well, this is somehow something that one has learned, they didn't have time to learn that. They may have attended, a, you know, they live in, um, they live out in Virginia, and Bill Stoney is a, is a retired aeronautical engineer who is featured on the, the list of NASA's, the 10 most people you'd like to meet. So Bill came to us through Iris Owen, who was um, living in Calgary at the time, and Iris was in her 80s, and she was, well, I think she was getting tired of all these inquiries, so she referred Bill to us, and Bill came out and, you know, met several times, so. Well, now, since you brought up Iris Owen, who was uh, very active with the Toronto Society for Psychical Research, and one of the co-authors of the famous book, Conjuring Up Philip, what about the records of the Philip group? Are they being preserved? What survived after Iris's passing, uh, George and Iris's son, Robin, I'm in, in contact with him. Robin sent them to my organization, the Survival Research Institute of Canada. And um, I digitized some of them. They're available through the Survival Research website. There's a photograph of the Owens group, and then you can you can drill down from there. And the New Horizons Journal, whatever was um, offered to us, all of the occasional papers are all um, digitized and freely downloadable as PDFs there. And and the originals have gone to Manitoba as well. And I don't want to hold on to anything. Everything I get my hands on goes to Manitoba unless I can find another organization. So you, your philosophy is that th this kind of data should be put into libraries where you have professional custodians and public access. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, preferably archives and special collections so that it's they're non-circulating I think they need to be um, non-circulating collections mm -hmm. because otherwise... They'd be damaged. Well, and some of them are selling for such... Um, recently, we saw a colleague manage to purchase a copy of Conjuring Philip for $200 or something like that, mm -hmm. and, which is a ridiculous price. But, um, uh, you know, they would disappear, I think, if they were in university stacks. They would... Uh, so I think they should be in special collections. I, I see what you're saying. Yes, I've noticed that lots of times these books and psychical research and parapsychology are sh small print runs to begin with. I think that's it, yeah. And then uh, they go out of print, and over time people realize they are historical treasures. And they're hard to find. Obviously. Yeah. Lots of I, spiritualist books uh, from... The uh, 1930s and earlier are uh, quite valuable. They are, yes. And I think the reason is people are looking for authentic evidence. That, I think, is a challenge for a lot of people to figure out how one determines what authentic evidence is. And I do believe that um, all of these experiences, all of these exceptional human experiences, as coined by Rhea White, um, they're all valuable. 
but they're not all evidence of life after death. They're evidence of all kinds of things, right. but not necessarily life after death. So that's what I'm, my primary interest in, in this for many years has been, um, you know, in addition to the personal experiences I've had that have convinced me with beyond doubt there is life after death, how does one make one's way through this broad field of human experience mm -hmm. and help make some sense of it for other people? Because most people are not willing to spend... Um, I haven't been in this quite as long as you, but I, I started in 1975. Mm -hmm. So I've got 40... Six years, I guess, going on 47 years, you know, including a, I don't have an Uncle Harry, but I have my grandpa, grand, grandfather John, who, you know, stood there between my myself and my mother at a spiritualist church service um, and gave a very important message to me as a struggling teenager at that point when I was 17, I guess, you know, a very important, a very affirmative um message that everything would be fine and the, the medium was able to look at us and say i've got your father your your gra your grandfather your father he's standing behind you his name is john um it's not it's not you know not um the depth of evidence in that case but the accuracy was there because it was so short and the the, the message was so relevant to me so it's um and I've had a, you know, I've had a handful of very, very good ev evidential experiences, mm -hmm. which helps me um, know the importance of all of this as human experience. I think that's the, the key, Walter, because ultimately, when we talk about survival after death, we're talking about the far reaches of human consciousness. Mm -hmm whether it's survival after death or materialization or airport psychokinesis or uh, ectoplasm or telepathy. It's ultimately about what human consciousness is capable of achieving. And we don't understand that. We just, you know, we're just grappling with that. I know there are people that claim they <laughs> understand it, and there's, there are people that we know that have claimed that... Um, um, well, that life after death or any other thing is absolutely proven. Um, it's proven to me. Mm -hmm. I assume I know that it's proven to you, yeah. but it's not something that has been proven to the masses. And um, and how does one how does one portray it all in perhaps a better light um, because of the controversies mm -hmm. that come up every once in a while about different aspects of the different aspects of the evidence where things are discredited many years later or it's, it's a challenge. But so. establishing these archival collections seems to me to be an important piece of the puzzle. Absolutely. I think that, um, you know, if we don't do that, every generation is going to reinvent the wheel and start over again. And there's no, um, there's no ongoing process. There's no base from which one can, um, and I'm also fascinated by the way the phenomena seems to change over time. For example, in recent years, we, a lot of the phenomena that were once attributed to spiritualist seances now are associated with UFO contactees. I haven't delved into that other than reading some of the Whitley Strieber's books and mm -hmm. deciding I'm going to pull the blankets over my head. <laughs> I'm going to hide. So I, I have not, uh, not delved into that, but, uh, mm -hmm. No, certainly the, the the types of communication have been changing. Um, you know, as you said, people don't have the patience. So ectoplasm, there's not as many instances of materialization or ectoplasm now. 
Um, but I think we, we really have to work to tease apart the fact that there, there's a distinction between these phenomena being genuine phenomena as opposed to them necessarily being evidence of life after death. Right. Um, you may be aware of the book that's coming out, a three-volume, well, it's really his, his magnum opus, um, a, a, an author living in um, France, uh, Michel Granger, who's publishing La Saga de l'Ectoplasme. So he's published volume one. He's got two more volumes to go. I've been working with him since about 2004. And he's a retired um, chemist, uh, in, in chemist in the French sense of, of pharmacy. So, um, and he's convinced, um, he's absolutely convinced of the reality of some genuine ectoplasm. I am not sufficiently aware of the French literature, but I know, for example, at the Institut Metapsychique in Paris, they have a collection of um, paraffin uh, hands that were uh, apparently ostensibly materialized in seances. Uh, well, I'm not saying it exactly. The wax was created in the seance by, there was a bucket of molten wax and a bucket of cold water, and the story is that the spirit would be asked to dip their hand into the molten wax and into the, um, the cold water, and then the hand would dematerialize, and floating in the water would be those wax uh, fingerprints, or even in some cases whole hands. Like a glove. A glove, and then later they would um, fill those with... Um, Plaster. Plaster, plaster of Paris, I believe, and then they would have a permanent artifact. So that's what they have, the plaster hands made out of the paraffin gloves that were produced in seances. Correct. And there are photographs, certainly, of some of the, um, the wax fingerprints that you will have seen in the, uh, the Paranormal Review special issue about Dr. Hamilton. So mm -hmm. Dr. William Creighton uh, was involved in those experiments, and it's his table that I mentioned earlier. The table that we've um, managed to acquire from Manitoba comes from Dr. and Mrs. Creighton. Well, without the existence of these various artifacts, if you, you were to try and tell the story uh, of what happened, people would think you're making it up. They do anyway. I mean, <laughs> they, I, you know, and, and my conclusion is we, you know, the fringes, I've spent, I've spent 30 years since I went to Winnipeg to first look at the Hamilton records in 1991. I'd have to advise anyone getting involved in this field. You know, it's different. I'm collect, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in these as archival collections mm -hmm. and ensuring the preservation of all this material. But I really would suggest anyone new getting into the field shouldn't be looking around the peripheries of the paranormal. Forget about tables moving and, and ectoplasm, but focusing on um, contemporary um, instances of after-death communications, for instance, and uh, because those are a current form of exceptional human experience that are, are frequently had by many yeah. people. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I think the idea of an online registry to, as, as Jeffrey Long is doing with, and uh, Jeffrey and Jody Long are doing with the, um, the Near Death Experience Research Foundation. They have a, a smaller page focused on ADCs, mm -hmm. after death communications. And I think that is possibly the way forward to collect those and then select the most impressive ones and apply the research methodology that Ian Stevenson uh, developed with respect to the uh, cases of the re re in reincarnation type and really do that in-depth um, research because so long as um, this all remains anecdotal 
and there's no real follow-up. And especially, you know, until we know the who, when, why, where, and what about a case, it's never going to be taken seriously. And, you know, I spent all these years, I have 3,000 books from the Survival Research Institute of Canada Library in my home. I have access to those monographs. And nobody's really going to pay attention to that, especially from the, the aspect, the, the court of law aspect, until we can document who all those people were, who were the mediums, who were the, the recipient of the message, who were the spirit communicators, with inaccuracy, just as Dr. Ian Stevenson attempted to do with the court cases. Yeah. It's hard work. Oh, it's, it's excruciating work, yes. Mm -hmm. But I think it has to be done. And a younger generation is going to have to do it. <laughs> Unless you're willing to take on another challenge. We all do what we can. And uh, it's important to preserve things for the future generations so that they will know what we've done. Because let's go back uh, 150 years. A lot of fascinating work was done, but very little of it has been preserved. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, no, the, the material from the 1840s, 1850s, 1860s doesn't, not much survives. And I've not been able to look at the um, Society for Psychical Research Archives, the 1880s. Um, and again, with the American equivalent, we don't know what survives from those early decades, but I suspect it's mostly what actually was published. Yeah. I don't think the raw data is, is there. Well, Walter Meyer to Erpen, this has been a fascinating conversation. I know we could talk for hours <laughs> yes, because yes. we both have a passion for, for this field. And I expect that uh, there are amongst the viewers and listeners of our conversation, younger people who also are cultivating a passion for it. And that, that's why I think it's important that we can uh, share our experiences on video, and that that also becomes part of a larger archive. And that's an important question. Have you made provision for archiving of your well, your work? I should talk to you about it. At the moment, they're on YouTube, right? Uh, and so Google owns YouTube, and I imagine that uh, they are. Um, there is, what do they call it, the Internet Time Machine? The Wayback Machine. The Wayback Machine. Yeah. So once things get up on the Internet, they're already being preserved to, to some extent. And I have a thousand videos yeah. <laughs> on this YouTube channel now, more than a thousand actually. Yeah. And it's growing. So uh, hopefully that, that also becomes uh, part of the permanent archive. A very important part to the, the number of people you've interviewed over these decades, right? Yeah. It's very important. And now you are one of them. Oh, thank you. Yes. Well, thank you, Walter, so much for being with me today. It's, it's been a real pleasure. Yes, likewise. And for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us. Thank you.